a joy for me to open the word to you, to, to preach, to do expository preaching, where we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. Uh, I don't know where I'd be if I had to pick a topic every week. I don't know where we'd be as a church. We want to go verse by verse through scripture, paragraph by paragraph, bringing out the meaning of the text, explaining the theology that the text is pointing to or teaching, and then applying it to our lives. And that's what we've been doing through the book of Romans. I always want to call it the gospel of Romans. It really is the gospel as Paul is reminding the Romans and teaching them new things, but often just reminding them of what they already know and expanding on that. And it's about the gospel. It's about Christ. It's about what we should know about our own salvation as believers. And it's about how we apply that now into our life. So we're looking at Romans 8 all summer, it seems like. We're going to be in Romans 8. We're at 8, 28 through 30. So I want to read this unit of text to you. It is connected from 18 all the way down through 30 as one larger unit about comparing the sufferings of this present time. They're not worthy to be compared at all to the glory that is to be revealed to us. What we're going through now in this life is not at all even comparable to the glory that is to come when we're with Christ. When he, when he returns, we get our resurrected bodies. And he's been developing through the rest of this subunit different reasons why it's not comparable. And we came to verse 28 last week. So let me read 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This brings up the question today, believer, are you confident that you're going to make it to heaven? Are you certain? Are you sure, believer, that you will be with Christ someday? A lot of religions teach you cannot know. You cannot have confidence. And yet the Bible says you can. This verse says you can. This verse gives us assurance, gives us the doctrine of eternal security. I'm not asking if you've trusted in Christ and repented of your sin. That's an important question. And if you're here today and haven't done that, then you should. Today's the day of salvation. No, I'm asking, how do you know you will make it to the end of the race? And if the answer is something about you, then you've got the wrong answer. Because this verse teaches us it's God who will ensure we make it to the finish line. It's God that will ensure we make it to the final goal of being with Christ forever and ever. And this is the answer given here in verse 29. Since 18, Paul's been making this comparison, as I said. And he brings up in 28 that all things, all things that have ever happened, that are happening now, that ever will happen are being used and have been used and will be used for the good of God's people. Who are God's people? Those who love God. Those who have a real love for God. Christians, believers. The only ones who can truly love God. And he defines those same people a different way. Those who are called. Those who are divinely called. Those who are effectually called by God's grace to salvation in Christ. That group, believers, true, genuine Christians, all things we know work together for good because God decrees all things to happen. They're all according to his purpose. And he is making sure that they happen 
for the good of his people. Not the good necessarily in this life, although we see some little fringes of that, but it's the eternal good. Everything that happens in your life is for the eternal good of God's people, God's elect. So we looked at verse 28 last week, and I had hoped we could do 29 and 30 this week. I had hoped. But I preached on this before, and I did it in four sermons, 29 and 30. And I think maybe, Lord willing, I can do it this time in two sermons. But we're only looking at 29 today. And what we're seeing here in 29 and 30 is what's called the unbreakable chain. Some call it the golden chain. And the Puritans referred to it as a golden chain because they said God lets down this golden chain from heaven to draw up his people. But I think another term for it is unbreakable chain. The links cannot be broken. The links cannot be broken in this chain. So if you're in any one of these links, if you can identify yourself in any one of these links, then you know the rest applies to you as well. And Paul has endeavored to talk about justification already. He's mentioned some things about glorification. We just looked at called last week. So now we're going back to the very beginning of the list here, starting in verse 29. This is the unbreakable chain. This is truly deep theology. We're looking at holy ground today. This is the peaks here of theology when it comes to teaching from Scripture about our salvation and what God is doing and has done for us. This is pulling back the curtain so we can get a view just for a second of what God has done for us in redemption. What has He done? He has made sure that those that He has foreloved will make it all the way to glorification. That's the beginning and the end of the chain. And we're looking at this greatness and grandeur of the eternal glory of God. This is about the glory of God here. And I hope you see that as we go through it. John Piper called it one of the most weightiest of matters in the Bible. Especially these doctrines of predestination and foreknowledge. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 13 sermons on it. If you thought three or four was a lot, 13 sermons. I can't even keep up with reading his sermons as I go through this on my own. He said it was one of the most remarkable statements right here in 28 through 30. One of the most remarkable statements that the Apostle Paul ever made. It's one of the most comforting statements in the whole range of Scripture. There is really no exalted doctrine higher than this. Here is the ultimate doctrine. More packed with doctrine and comfort than any other in the whole realm of Scripture. So today... Just looking at 29, we're going to look at the first two links in the chain, but I've got three points. Don't get confused. I'm not doing the Puritan points, subpoints, sub sub points. But I think the, the third point today deserves its own focus in the sermon, as I'll mention later. Looking at the first two links in the chain. And really what is happening here is that Paul is saying that here's the reason we know that all things work together for good. Why? Because those whom? It's because of God's people. He is working all things together. Of course, it's for his glory. Everything that he talks about here is for his glory. But the wonderful thing is, the most amazing thing is, that he did this for us. Wretched sinners. And he did this for us before the world was ever created. Before time began. So today... I want to give you three reasons why believers are eternally secure. Yes, there's weighty doctrine here. Yes, there's deep doctrine, but the purpose, the reason it's here 
is to tell us that we are eternally secure. If you're in Christ, you're eternally secure. Number one, God's electing love for us. God's electing love for us. Because those whom he foreknew, foreknew. There's a lot of debate right there over that first link in the chain. What is it that Paul is talking about here? What is foreknowledge? Greek, pro-gnosko. Gnosko is to know. Pro means before. So it literally means to know beforehand. Or, depending on context, to choose beforehand. So when you have a word like this, you have to look at the context. And we know the context. We've been considering it. But we also have to look at other verses that use this word, prognosco. And essentially what I'll show you is that God the Father here is choosing to put his special electing love on those that he's chosen for salvation. This is electing love. And it's really the most important in all the five links. If you don't understand this one, the rest won't be correct. If you don't get this first link right and your biblical understanding of God's foreknowledge, then you won't get the rest correct. It's critical that we realize what this verb foreknow means. The proper interpretation will determine how we interpret the rest of the chain. Now, some will argue that this means simply that God looked forward in time. That he looked forward in time and saw that you would believe, and that's his foreknowledge. And because you would believe, in other words, it's on you, they say, that's why God elected you, because he knew you would believe. He looked down the corridors of time into the future, and God learned something about you believing. In this sense, election would be conditional. It would be conditioned on the fact that a person believes. And it would mean that God is looking forward to learn something that he did not know would happen. But God's never looked forward into the future and learned anything. God knows all things. God is outside of time. He knows all things. He actually brings all things that come to pass to pass. He decrees all things. That was the teaching in 28. Paul's already covered that. God is sovereign over all things. Now he's zooming in on your salvation, the believer's salvation. All things are in God's hands. All things are under God's control, including your own salvation. Now, the modern man, for some reason, when we talk about our own salvation, we get a little touchy. How dare you? That was on us. That was our faith. And that brings up all kinds of questions in our mind. But let's look at what the word actually means. Because it doesn't mean God looks forward in time. God knows all things. He doesn't need to look forward in time to learn something. And that's not what Paul's saying here. He's talking about a people that he foreknew. It doesn't say he foreknew people would have faith. It doesn't say he foreknew events that would happen. It says that those whom he foreknew. James Montgomery Boyce makes that point. He said, it says here that God foreknows people, not what they are going to do. And faith is not even mentioned in this verse. He knew you in a special loving way. That's what it means to foreknow. He knew you in a special loving way. And because of that love, he would one day change your heart to believe. So let me prove that to you from scripture. I think the context points to that. Let's look at what this word means, prognosco. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for know is yada. Yada means to know. And there it is often used as a common biblical expression for loving the person. To know somebody is to love them in a special way. 
in an intimate way. In Genesis 4.1, we see this used for marriage. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife. So physical, one flesh, intimate union in marriage. Adam knew his wife, and out of that knowing, she conceived. Same in the New Testament. Gnosko is used, not progonosko, that's knowing beforehand, that's foreloving. But just to know in the New Testament, gnosko is used in Matthew 125. Joseph kept her a virgin, Mary, until she gave birth to a son. Now that's the LSB NASB. The ESV is more literal. It says, Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Joseph did not know her in the physical, intimate way that a man knows his wife. Same in Luke 31, when Mary speaks to the angel. She says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? But literally, it's how can this be since I do not know a man? So there we see the idea of knowing as a very close, intimate, special love between husband and wife. Also, we see this word used in the Old and New Testament for God loving and knowing in a special way his covenant people. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the innermost parts, I knew you. Now, God's not saying, I didn't know Jeremiah that he would ever exist until he was in the womb. No, God's saying, I knew you. Before you came out from the womb, I set you apart. The idea is a setting apart. God displayed his special covenantal love on Jeremiah to be his prophet and set him apart for that purpose. Amos 3.2, you only have I known. Or the NASB, you only have I chosen. You see how this word can mean choosing in a loving way. You only have I known, talking about Israel, among all the families of the earth. God didn't learn about Israel at some point in time. He has known Israel in a special way because he chose Israel. In fact, the reason he chose them is because he decided to put his love on Israel. Genesis 18, verse 19. God says to Abraham, For I have chosen, or known, Yada, I have chosen him, talking about Abraham, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that Yahweh may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. God's not saying at some point he learned about Abraham. No, he knew Abraham. He loved Abraham is what he's getting at in a electing way. He put his electing love on Abraham. We see this same special covenantal love in the New Testament, not only in marriage, but in the context of Jesus talking about his own sheep. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These are the people who claim to be in Christ. They claim to be Christians. They claim to be Jesus' sheep. But he says, no, you practice lawlessness. It's obvious you're not mine. I don't even know who you are. We read today about someone knocking on the door saying, let me in. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Jesus didn't say there that he didn't know who they were. He knows who they are. He knows all things. He's God. He's saying, I didn't know you in that special loving way, electing love. John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd and I know, gnosko, I know my own and my own know me. And in verse 27 of John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them 
and they follow me. He knows them. He loves them in an electing, loving, covenantal way. The meaning of foreknowledge here in Romans 8.29 is the idea of foreloved. God knows them in the way that he set his love upon them before they were ever in existence. He decided in his own mind to love the elect, which would be the same thing, right? Foreknowledge is basically God's electing love. Sometimes we use the word election, sometimes predestination, which is slightly different. We'll get to that next. But really, we could say foreknowledge is just God's electing love, his choice. In the apostles' letters, the epistles, we see this. Go to 1 Peter 1 2. I want you to see some of these in your Bibles. 1 Peter 1 2. We see here where Peter's opening up the letter and he's describing believers, the saints that he's writing to. And in 1 Peter 1, verse 2, he says, Those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Why were they chosen? Because of God's foreknowledge, of, of that foreloving that God the Father did. He chose certain people for salvation because he has already foreloved them. We'll go back to Romans now. Romans 11, verse 2. He's talking about Israel. Romans eleven two. 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. So God has foreknown Israel. The same exact word that he uses in Romans 8.29. The Bible does not speak of our faith as being the reason that God chooses us. Yes, we must exercise faith. But when we get back to the very beginning of it all, God chooses people based on his sovereign will. His grace. That's what it means to not be by works. It's not anything we've done. We can't even pat ourselves on the back for faith and repentance. Only by the grace of God are we able to do that. That is foreknowledge that he has chosen in his electing love for us. He has chosen a people for his own possession. If you're here today trusting in Christ alone for salvation, that means you know you can look at this Link right here and say, that's me. He foreknew me. He put his electing love on me before he ever created anything. That's powerful. Sometimes we get into the debates on what this means. And we start reading the different views and getting ready to argue with people on theology. But this is a comforting teaching. He loved me. He loved you. Sinners. Knowing what we would do with our life before we came to Christ. Knowing what we would do with our life after we came to Christ. When we'd still sin. And yet, he set his electing love on you. What a savior. What a love. The second point I want to look at this morning is God's predetermined plan for us. So God has an electing love. And now he, he sets a plan in motion. To bring us to Christ. He marks us out. His elect. He predestines. That's what it means. To have a predetermined plan. He's fixed in advance the destiny of those whom he foreloved. He has decided what the destiny of those people would be. You see there. The same group that he foreknew. He also predestined. Now we're going to see it's the same group all the way through. That's what makes it an unbreakable chain. 
Once you're on the train, R.C. Sproul said, you can't get off that train. It's going all the way to the end. And that's a good thing. We don't want to get off the train. That's assurance. That's the hope that is to come. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. To predestine simply means to mark out. To decide upon beforehand. To predetermine. To foreordain. It's the fact that God marks out in eternity past those that he set his love upon. Sometimes we think, well, there's different meanings for these words depending on who you talk to. The gold standard for the Greek dictionary is called BDAG. It's short for all the guys' names who put it together. If you look up these words and they try to put them in context, and this is not a real Calvinistic doctrines of grace group that wrote this, but they will tell you that in the context of Romans 8 and Romans 9, that foreknowledge has the idea of electing, of choosing. And they will tell you predestination has the idea of God marking out in eternity past those that he set his love on. Won't be exactly like that, but you'll get the idea if you have that dictionary. It's about yay big. Don't get it in print, though. Get it on electronic format. So predestined. For knowledge, we just looked at, is the part of election that God focuses on those that he will love. He puts his love upon them. And from that springs predestination, which emphasizes that God predetermined beforehand what would happen in the lives of the elect. Even before I was saved, I just remember thinking, there's got to be some purpose to life. There has to be some purpose to these things that are happening in my life. Even culture realizes that, right? They say the universe, the universe as a deity of some sort is going to bless me. The universe is going to take care of me. All things happen for a reason. Nothing is random. Those are things that I heard growing up and I just felt like God is doing something. I believed in God. I didn't know the gospel yet. But I knew there was something there that was pointing all things to an eventual conclusion. The predestined will be called. They will be justified. They will be glorified. That's where the chain is going. But let's turn over to Ephesians now. Ephesians 1. Same writer, the Apostle Paul, mentions the idea of predestination there as well. And often we just say predestination and election are exactly the same. They're not exactly the same. They touch on the same doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation. But they're not exactly the same thing, especially here in Romans. Paul is trying to differentiate those words. Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us, that's election. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before anything was created, before anything happened, Nothing about looking forward in time to learn. No, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. By predestined. This is how he brought it all about. By predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Why did God choose you? Not because of anything you've done. Not because you're smarter, better, holier, or anything like that. It's because of his good pleasure. Now, that might not be enough answer for you. That's enough for me. Knowing that I didn't deserve it and knowing that it was his good pleasure, we should be good with that. Praise the Lord. Now look at verse 11. We also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. There it is again, his purpose, his good pleasure, his will. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That is a statement about God's sovereignty and salvation. 
He can make sure that the same group that he set his electing love on in eternity past will indeed be saved because he marks them out and he makes sure that all things happen so that they will come to that saving point in their life. The point when God sends the call. That's the next step in the chain, the divine call to the heart. That happens in time. But these things we're looking at today happen in eternity past. When did God choose a people for himself? When did God predestine all the things that would occur in their life? In eternity past. If we can even use that phrase, right? Eternity past. You've read about this in the Psalms. I was just reading the other day, Psalm 139 and verse 16. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. Not in the Bible. It doesn't say Michael Beck will live such and such amount of years. But in God's secret book. In God's secret will. He already has set forth the exact days that were ordained for you. Because God knows. He decrees all things. He controls all things. Including your salvation. Now we need to stop here and deal with some objections, answer some questions, because this doctrine is attack, predestination especially. I remember when I first moved back here to plant a church, we had a guy over to the house to work on some things, and he was a Christian. He knew we were planting a church. He started a conversation with me, and he said, y'all aren't one of those churches that teaches predestination, are you? And I said, well, it's in the Bible, and Lord willing, I'll get an opportunity to teach it when it comes up. But yes, we do, because it's in the Bible. And he said, no, it's not in the Bible. And so I went to Romans 8, went to Romans 9, went to Ephesians 1. And he said, okay, well, it's in the Bible. But it doesn't mean what you think it means. And we went through some more Bible studies. It was a good two or three hour Bible study. And then he went off to do the work he was supposed to do. But he had not really been taught on what it means and why it's there. And it's eventually his biggest argument was, how can people be comforted if that's the case? If God has done all these things. And I said, that's the greatest comfort. Because it's in God's hands, not our hands. If we could lose our salvation, we would lose it. But let's deal with some objections. That's the first one. It's not in the Bible. But it's mentioned by name. Election, predestination is mentioned by name 17 times in the New Testament. That's just election. I didn't count predestination. So election, 17 times in the New Testament. Sometimes translated as chosen. Some say, well, it might be in the Bible, but it's too dangerous to look at. It's, it's too mysterious to look into. The secret things belong to God, and that is true. But the revealed things belong to his people. And guess what? When it's in the Bible, it's been revealed. He's revealed it to us for a reason. So now we can study it. We can't go further than the boundaries of Scripture on it, but we can study it. And we're not to try to pry into the hidden things of God. Even John Calvin, when he's talking about this, he says we're not to choose... To try to see into the darkness. There's a limit how far we can see on this doctrine. And then after that, we leave it to God. It's not been revealed. But the revealed things have been given to us for our comfort, for our benefit. The second objection is, you know, it just doesn't matter. It's not important. It's just going to lead some people to stumble. Well, did God make a mistake by having Paul put it here? Did God make a mistake by having Peter put it in 1 Peter Did God make a mistake by having Paul put it in Ephesians? Did Jesus make a mistake by talking about it when he spoke on it in the Gospels? Did Luke make a mistake by putting it in Acts when he was inspired to do that? Did God not know people would resist sometimes this doctrine and stumble over it? Yeah, which is even more of a reason to make sure it's in Scripture. It kills pride. This doctrine 
kills pride because it reminds us salvation is all of the Lord. A third objection. So number one was it's not in the Bible. Number two, it doesn't matter. Number three, it can't be true because man is responsible for his sin. And I think Paul would respond to that and say, didn't you read the first three chapters of my letter? Didn't you read Romans 1 through 3? That's all he talked about was sin. Some of you are wondering if we were ever going to get out of Romans 1 through 3. It was like a year or more, right? It's just everybody's a sinner. Gentiles are sinners. Jews are sinners. No one is righteous. No, not one. Paul's already established that. Man is responsible for their own sin. Every person is responsible for their sin. Romans 3.9. Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So a person must be justified by God. And that's through faith. He's already explained all of that. Now he's looking back and saying, you can be assured that you'll make it to glorification because in eternity past, God did these things. He foreloved you. He predestined you. Faith even is a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Faith is something we do. It's an exercise. It is something we actually do. But we must remember, even the ability to have faith comes from God, Paul says. And the reason he says that, he finishes Ephesians 2, 9. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. No one can boast. Because we could try to boast about our faith. Hey, God had to save me. I had faith. The Bible says you wouldn't have had faith unless God chose you. Jesus said that God's election comes before faith. No one can come to me, he said, unless the Father who sent me draws them. That doesn't mean you knew that before you came to Christ. You don't realize that. You're in Romans 3. You're in Romans 1, Romans 2. You're lost in sin. But now that we're on the other side of it, the other side of the cross, we look back and we see this wonderful teaching that no one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. God's sovereign over everything. And man is responsible. Both of those are taught in scripture. God's sovereign over everything. And you're responsible for your sin. So teaching on predestination, election, doesn't mean that we're saying people aren't responsible for their own sin. We talked a bit about that in the last sermon on Romans 8, 28. All things. God is sovereign over all things, including sin that happens in the world, including the evil things that come about in the world. But he's not the direct cause of those things. He's sovereign, though, over all of them. The fourth objection, and this is probably the biggest one, it takes away our free will to choose God. People would say election and predestined takes away our free will to choose God. Well, here it is in scripture. And that's what the verse says. It's there, his foreknowledge, his forelove, and his predestination, his election. But there's no verse in the Bible that talks about our free will to choose God apart from any action on his part. You can't point to a verse. In fact, if you search the phrase free will, you'll find it in one place. The Old Testament and the free will offerings. Which meant that God didn't command you had to make those offerings, but you could choose to do that if you decided to throughout the year. You can make a free will offering. The idea of absolute free will, the idea that we're in control of all things in our life, is a philosophical teaching, not a biblical teaching. The Bible says that our will, our desire to do things, is bound by the realm that we're in. For outside of Christ, we're bound by sin. 
And that was in Romans 5, Romans 6. Paul talks about that slavery to sin. We can make choices, choices to sin. But then when we're freed from that, when we're free in Christ, now we can choose to please God. Now we can choose to use our will in a godly way and accomplish those things we desire to do for the Lord's sake. But ultimately, only God has absolute free will. It could work no other way. If anybody else had absolute free will to do whatever they please, apart from what God had said, decreed, or desired, that's like saying there's another God. Only God has absolute free will. That's why the Bible doesn't talk about free will. Yes, it says come to Christ. Yes, it says choose Jesus, come to him. But ultimately, you have to realize that's God working through you. That's why he talks about taking out the stony heart and giving you a heart of flesh that can believe cleansing you. God does all this. Another major one, the fifth and last one I'll mention here, objection, is that it kills evangelism. That if you teach these things and believe it, it'll kill evangelism. I think it gives confidence in evangelism. I think it gives confidence because we know out there, God has chosen his people, but we don't know who they are. So we don't have to worry that it's up to us. We just have to take the message. We just have to be the sower of the seed like the parable of soils talks about. And there's different types of soils. We just sow the seed. It's up to God to bring the growth. It's God who brings the increase. We're just to do what he tells us. And he tells us, first of all, that we are to evangelize. That's why Joel Beakey says, election is not a hindrance to evangelism, as Arminians say. It's a spur to evangelism. Paul taught God's sovereignty and salvation. But how much did he evangelize? He planted churches. He evangelized probably more than any of us will ever evangelize. That's what drove him to it. In fact, he says that. It's not even a question. He says in 2 Timothy 2.10, For this reason I endure all things. Why does he go through all things? Why does he go through stoning, whipping, shipwreck, all of these things? For the sake of the elect, he says. Because he knows that there's an elect out there and he is being sent to tell them the gospel. But he doesn't know who they are. God didn't reveal that to us. And he says, for this reason, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, so that they also may obtain the salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. God uses his people to take his message out to reach the elect. And when we sit here and say, well, we shouldn't do that. God's already predestined. That's called hyper-Calvinism. That's not taught in the Bible. That pretty much amounts to heresy. God has told us to take out the message. John Calvin, who some people think created this doctrine, we see here that it's in scripture from the beginning of the Bible all the way through. But John Calvin, you know, he did teach it in his theological tome, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He put it in about half ways. He talked about God. He talked about man. He talked about prayer. He did put it in there because it's in scripture. But he also trained 2,000 pastors to go back to their home countries where they all became martyrs. It was known as Calvin's school of death because you'd go there to learn theology and how to be a pastor. And then you'd go back to France or back to your country, Spain, Navarre, wherever, and you would likely be killed for not being Roman Catholic or preaching the gospel. Whitfield believed in this doctrine. George Whitfield, the first great evangelist in America, he attracted crowds of 20 to 30,000 in the late 1700s. 20 to 30,000 people. And he kept telling them, you must be born again. That was his favorite sermon that he preached. Great evangelist. The one who started the modern missionary movement, William Carey. 
He's known as the father of modern missions. William Carey believed this doctrine. He was what's called a Reformed Baptist in England. And he said, I'm going to India because Revelation 5.9 says that God has a people out there. Out from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And he says, I'm going because God's elect is there. They're in India. So he went. Spurgeon, the prince of preachers. He said, this is a reason for evangelism. And it's a guarantee of success. Because God has those who are waiting to hear the gospel from you. Spurgeon preached this all the time. He pretty much said, the doctrines of grace are the gospel. Because it's good news. So it doesn't kill evangelism. Just one more note on evangelism. Go to Matthew 11. Matthew 11, verse 25. Here's Jesus, and he's praising the Father. Listen to what he does here. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Matthew eleven twenty five through 27 is a statement about God's sovereignty. About predestination, about election. Jesus is saying, you choose who the people are that you're going to reveal this to. And no one can come to me unless you do that. And, and you've given it to the Son who wills to reveal him to people. And then look at verse 28. Come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You see what Jesus just did? He made a statement about God's sovereignty, and the only people who can come are those to whom the Father reveals this to, opens their heart to believe, in other words. And then he turns around and says, Come to me all. Now, Jesus actually knew who the elect were, and he says, We don't know. And we can do the same thing here. We can teach on God's sovereignty and salvation and tell all people to come just like Jesus did. He didn't make a contradiction there. He is a good example of how to hold both these truths in conjunction with one another. Predestination is sweet. It's a comforting doctrine. It's a doctrine where God lets us know that we will persevere, that we will be saved. Because he has chosen that to happen before we were ever created. Martin Luther said predestination is a wonderfully sweet thing for those who have the spirit. Spurgeon said, I'm persuaded that the doctrine of predestination is one of the strongest staffs upon which a Christian may lean in his pilgrimage along the rough road. Suffering is the college of orthodoxy. Talking about suffering is is the right way to learn good theology. Many a Jonah, he says who now rejects the doctrines of grace, like predestination, who rejects these doctrines of grace, only needs to be put into the whale's belly, and he will cry out with the soundest free grace man, salvation is of the Lord. That's what Jonah said. He got put in the belly and he said, salvation's of the Lord. What could Jonah do in the belly of the whale? What could Jonah do? It had to be of the Lord. And Spurgeon's saying the, the free grace man, the guy who denies election and predestination, if he's put in a circumstance that is trying enough, like in the belly of a well, he will cry out, salvation is of the Lord. 
So we've looked at God's electing love for us. We've looked at God's predetermined plan for us. Let's thirdly now look at God's ultimate goal for us. God's ultimate goal for us. This is not a third link in the chain, but it's tied to predestination. It's tied to God's predetermined plan for us. But I've separated it out here in the sermon so we can give it the proper focus that it demands. This answers the question, what are we predestined to do then? And you would say, believe. We're predestined to be saved. We're predestined to repent of our sins. Yes, yes, yes. But this verse goes beyond that. That's assumed in predestination. This verse goes all the way to the very finish line. It's answering the question, what is our destiny? What is this thing we've been predestined to do? And he says, to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the purpose. Now, he's not skipping faith and and conversion. And divine calling. He's going to come back to calling in the next verse. But he pauses here for a second. And just says. God has marked everything out. So that we will go all the way to the end. Conform to the image of his son. God planned beforehand. That we would be made like Christ in glorification. The process is happening right now in our sanctification. But it will be finally complete. When we're resurrected. And we'll be with Christ forever. Not just in soul. If a Christian dies, they go, their soul goes to be with Christ. Their spirit goes to be with Christ. But when we get a resurrected body, we're fully glorified with him forever. That's what predestination is leading up to. The image of Christ. This should make us think back to in Genesis where God says that he made Adam and he made Eve in the image of God. But Adam, who was created to rule the world under God's lordship, he sinned. And he marred the image. So mankind now has this inherited sin and this inherited sin guilt. But the second Adam, Christ, he's done what the first Adam could not do. He's fulfilled perfect obedience. He's given his life for the elect. He's been given a glorified body. So now as believers, we're no longer to be in the image of Adam. We don't look to Adam. We look to Christ. Because he's the perfect image of God. Be like Jesus and his glory, which he obtained at the resurrection. Predestination then points to much more than just our deliverance from sin and death. Praise the Lord. We should honor God. We should thank the Lord that he delivered us from sin and death. But the ultimate goal is to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's God's plan for his children. Now, what does that mean? He says that ultimately that's for Christ's glory. So that he, look at the end of verse 29, So that he, Christ, would be the firstborn. So this firstborn language is taught in scripture in the way of two doctrines. There's two important things we need to say about the firstborn. By the way, it doesn't mean that he's the first human being ever born. We know that was Adam. We know that was Eve. So firstborn just means the preeminent one. This is the one who would receive the inheritance in ancient families. So he says his preeminent son, the preeminent one, the foremost one, is the one who's the rightful heir. What does it mean to be the firstborn? To be the rightful heir. He talks about this in Colossians. For by him, that's Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So he's the firstborn of all creation in that he's the preeminent one that inherits all of creation. But also the New Testament speaks of Christ being the firstborn of all believers. The first one 
with a human body to be glorified. The first one to be free of death and decay. It's one of the reasons he showed himself to his disciples after the resurrection. To give them hope. And so us being brought into the glory of the image of Christ doesn't diminish Christ at all. Because he's the firstborn. He's the preeminent one. He's gone before us. And our glorification gives him that preeminent place in the universe. The more people who come to Christ means the more who will actually be glorified in the eternal state and the more people will be glorifying him forever and ever. God planned before the foundation of the world that every believer here today will be part of Christ's kingdom, that he would have many people among his family, many brethren. Sometimes we think because the gate is narrow that that doesn't mean there's very many. Well, there's not compared to all that have ever existed, right? The gate is wide that leads to destruction. But just because the gate is narrow doesn't mean that, that Christ hasn't saved a multitude of multitudes of people for his glory. I don't think we can even imagine how many people will be in heaven forever and ever. And this is supposed to give us assurance because God, the Father, has purpose to predestinate people to be conformed to the image of his Son. So it goes from Father to Son. And we're in between that. Along the way, we're the means by which God is glorifying his Son. So can God break that promise to his Son? This is encouraging. Can God break a promise to his Son? It's not as if they sit down and wrote up some kind of contract. But the idea here is God has planned all this out to glorify his Son. He's not going to break that plan. How can God even do that? That means a genuine believer cannot fall out of the hand of God. That's what the golden chain, the unbreakable chain is about. A genuine believer cannot be lost, Paul says. You have the Spirit. He's already taught us in Romans 8. You have Christ. He's taught us in Romans 3 all the way through Romans 8. And now you have this predetermined plan of God. To be conformed to the image of his son. All the sufferings, all the groanings that happen in this world. We can look back to God and say, he has us. We're not going anywhere for truly his. How do you know if you're elect? How do you know? We well, have faith in Christ. You have faith in Christ. You turn from your sin. And then you go about living a Christian life. Not because it earns anything. But because that's what Christians do when they have the spirit. They're called to holiness. They're called to live a Christian life. Predestination doesn't mean we just sit back. Oh, we're predestined. We're going to make it for sure all the way to glory. No, this is God's love being displayed, being put on us. And that means we live even harder for him when we realize this truth. We run faster for him. This isn't sit back and be a spiritual couch potato because you're going to make it because God's already decided. When you learn about how much God loved you before you were ever even created, that should motivate you to live for him. They're meant to comfort you, these verses are, to strengthen you, to give you assurance for the worst times in your life. Nothing that can separate us from the eternal plan of God. And that's what he's going to talk about all the way through Romans 8. But it comes back to this peak right here, Romans 8, 28 through 30. My prayer today is if you're a believer in Christ, then you realize you've been foreknown, foreloved, and you've been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. It's absolutely certain that you'll be glorified. The only time you should ever have doubts is if you're living an unrepentant, sinful life and calling yourself a Christian. 
then you need to come in. You need to get biblical counseling. You need to speak with a pastor and elder. But if you're repenting of your sin, you're trusting in Christ. Stop worrying. Stop being anxious. Live for the Lord. Grow in holiness. Receive the comfort here that God gives. Let's pray for that now. Lord, comfort us with these words. Help us to realize there was nothing we could ever do to bring this about. There's nothing that we can do to force you to keep us. You do it of your own love. Thank you, Lord, that you chose us. We do not know why. We think of our sinful life before we came to Christ. We wonder why anyone would want to save us. How much rebellion we had against you. But yet you're good, you're gracious, you're loving. And you did, you did save a people, a people that are gathered here today. People all around the world, people throughout human history. Because you're good and gracious and that's part of your sovereign plan. So help this to beat down our pride. Help this teaching to make us realize it's all of you. And we must glorify you for it. We give you thanks in the name of your son. Amen.